This is the Berman Method podcast featuring Dr. Jake Berman and physician assistant Jenny Berman. We are here to treat problems and not symptoms. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and not to treat anyone or to give medical advice. If you are interested in any information that we are giving and would like to use this for yourself, we recommend that you contact your primary care physician or reach out to us and ask us questions about yourself specifically. Enjoy. And we're back. The Berman Method Podcast. The dynamic duo is reunited. I'm Dr. Jake Berman here with my lovely wife and co-star, co-host. Jenny Berman, physician <laughs> assistant. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Well, I just wasn't sure if it was my turn to talk yet. You were just going, going, going. <laughs> That's what I normally do, right? I just keep going and it's hard for you to get a a word in. It's true. (laughs) Well, we're back. I know it's been a while since we've been teamed up together. I hope you enjoyed the past few episodes that we recorded individually. I did, what did I do last week? Shoulder? Yeah, Mm -hmm. shoulder, shoulder pain, rotator cuff stuff. That was a very informative, very long, detailed, probably the longest episode I've ever done in my life. But very informative, so please go back and re-listen to that one. Pass it along to somebody that might need it. And what did you do right before me? Supplements. Talked a lot about supplements. Okay. So different supplements that we utilize, different ones that you might find over the counter that could be good for you or could not be good for you. So, yeah, that was a a lot of information, too. (laughs) Cool. And today, we've got a very interesting topic because when I first say what we're talking about today, the vast majority of people who should listen to this this episode and who it is relevant to may immediately tune out because they don't think it's relevant to them. Am I right? Right. Kind of. Yeah. Definitely. But it's relevant to nearly everyone. Okay. All right, you're starting to get my attention. Dun, 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 drum roll. What are we talking about? Insulin resistance and diabetes. Okay, specifically how insulin resistance leads to the official diagnosis of diabetes. Right. So the biggest thing I want to get across today is that you can actually identify insulin resistance or prediabetes or diabetes years before a lot of uh, doctors will check the one blood test that actually shows you're a diabetic. So there's some precursors or signs of diabetes and prediabetes up to 10 years before you actually identify that one blood test that says you're a diabetic. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, why should I care? It's a good question. So a lot of times we become diabetic later in life, officially diabetic or pre-diabetic. And really the whole time, the years leading up to that, we're actually causing damage to our cells. So later on having the effects of this blood sugar issue, but also sleep 
concerns, vitamin deficiencies, neurological breakdown, so the nerves actually dying. Uh, you might have heard a neuropathy before where people's feet get numb or they lose the feeling of their hands or their feet related to blood sugar instability for years. So you're really killing cells and killing nerve endings for years before the effects actually take place. And we could prevent that. Oh my gosh, not another episode about an ounce of prevention, is it? Goes a long way. <laughs> Goes a long way. Okay, so yes, we've been talking about this in our practices for a very long time. And I know we've mentioned this a few times on this episode as far as insulin resistance in different various ways, shapes, or forms. However, we want to get very layman's on you today and really talk about what does it mean? Because again, it really, the ounce of prevention is such a hard concept for a lot of people. They'd rather wait until it happens because you don't think it's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people, when they envision themselves in the future, they envision somebody that is a healthier, stronger, more mobile, capable person than what reality actually is. And this is a big thing that we've worked with in the physical therapy aspect for years is I can, just like you, what you're talking about here, running these tests and seeing these markers, I can do the same thing when I'm watching somebody walk down the road or walk down the sidewalk or exercise in the gym. I can say, okay, that person is going to have a hip replacement. Mm -hmm. That person is going to have a fall, walk into the bathroom in the middle of the night, and that's going to be what le ultimately leads to them losing their independence. But I can't just walk up to that person and say, hey, you've got this problem. You should come invest three, six, nine months of effort and work to prevent what's going to come down the road in five or ten years because when we look out into the future, myself included – Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we see ourselves as a healthier, stronger, more capable person than what reality actually is. So let's, let's break this thing down into layman's terms. We could use myself for an example as many times as you want. I won't get mad. <laughs> uh, you need to listen to this episode. <laughs> it's part of the reason why I was so excited that we were choosing this topic today because I'm, I'm the king uh, offender right here. Yes. So let's go on with it a little bit more, just in layman's terms. Just, you know, we talked about some sleep issues and sleep apnea and things like that. What are some, or neuropathy? I guess let's talk a little bit more about neuropathy. What does that even mean? Who cares if my feet go numb? What does it matter? Well, the nerve endings in your feet, one, are are important, but the feet, if we're not feeling our feet, not only is it uncomfortable, but it also affects our balance. So that's going to take us, like you said, to the falls in the middle of the night because it's dark. We don't have the proprioception and we can't feel where our feet are going. So that's an issue. Blood supply to the feet, when we don't have those nerve endings working properly, the blood supply is very poor. So we're more prone to getting sores on our feet ulcers that aren't healing. If we get a cut on our leg and it doesn't heal properly, then that increases our risk of infection, which is just another issue that can go really the wrong wrong direction. Uh, so really, neuropathy is a big thing. Not only is it uncomfortable, but we are at much higher risk for 
things that could actually increase mortality or cause us to die at an earlier rate. Let, that's, I'm so glad that you said those words because I think it's really important because this is ultimately what happens very, very frequently. I'll be working with people. We've, we've essentially developed lifelong relationships with a lot of our clients, and it, it is painful psychologically when something, quote-unquote, takes them out of the race where, man, I did not see that thing coming. How the heck did this happen? And then all of a sudden, we're really thinking that we're going to lose this person. For example, you and I both have worked with a gentleman for a very long time, and he had a diabetic ulcer on his lower leg, and it wasn't diagnosed as an ulcer originally. It was just diagnosed as a wound, and this guy was in very, I wouldn't say very good shape in general, but he was very capable, Mm -hmm. right? He was very, very capable, very independent, and he had this ulcer, long story short, that would not close for over two freaking years years. Mm -hmm. No exaggeration at all. So we are walking on eggshells, tiptoe, or, you know, just dancing around death for two years because he's got this open wound there that could have led to... Blood infections. Yeah. That's that's the biggest thing. All sorts of things. The risk of infection. And it's just silly, though. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just silly because it's very preventable. Because mm-hmm. it's exactly what we're talking about today. Right, right. Blood sugar stability. And like Jake said, these are all things that we don't expect to ever happen to us or to our family. But it blood sugar is blood sugar. If our blood sugar is not stable, it's decreasing our immune response. It's decreasing the immune system, leading us to many autoimmune disorders that our body just can't fight off anymore. It also affects the metabolism, as a lot of us know. So one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, we we are hearing all these effects of diabetes, but how can we know ahead of time that we're heading into that direction? And I just was thinking about this last week because I had a client who I was looking over his cholesterol values and his triglycerides were extremely elevated. And he said, oh, I've had high triglycerides since I was 18. And that's where I was like, this is the number one, the first sign of insulin resistance or prediabetes later in life is your triglyceride level. That is the first thing that I see elevated years before people's insulin level or A1C, hemoglobin A1C becomes abnormal. Triglycerides is one of the cholesterol values. This is directly related to carbohydrate, sugar, and alcohol. And so people will say, oh, it's been high for years. Well, it goes back to what were you eating at that point when your triglyceride level started to creep up? That's when the body is just starting to not respond well to carbohydrates and sugar. So you consume those for a period of time in your life, and that level is going to elevate. So that's number one. Since we're talking about it right now, I think this is the first time this episode that you've actually said it. And again, this is along the lines, we need to be reminded more than we need something new. Just so everybody listening to this right now understands when we're talking about blood sugar, we're not literally talking about only eating cookies and candies and things like that. 
blood sugar is affected majorly by carbohydrates and alcohol in addition to cookies and all those delicious foods. Yeah. So to cover what he's saying is carbohydrates can be anything from bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, all the way to things like beans, fruit, you know, that people think are very healthy, quinoa, lentils, zucchini and squash are actually a little bit of a starchier vegetable, peas, potatoes, I already said that, corn, corn. Everybody loves corn and peas, but those are both very starchy vegetables that can actually cause a spike in blood sugar. Soda, juices, candy, sweets, donuts. So it doesn't alcohol. It's not just, you know, the candy and the chocolate. It could be all the things to the breads and pastas and rices as well. And the most people think that a very healthy breakfast, I know we've talked about this before, but we're going to say it again. So many people think that a very healthy healthy breakfast consists of oatmeal, mm-hmm. fruit, mm-hmm. and a piece of toast with peanut butter on it. Right. I can't tell you how many people, I used to think that way too, but essentially what you're consuming there for breakfast after coming off of fasting, right? You haven't ate anything since dinner the previous night. So that's what breakfast stands for, right? You're breaking from fasting. And now you're going to pour a bunch of sugar. All of those things that we just mentioned are carbs and sugars. Carbs are broken down into sugar. So you're essentially jump-starting your day with a bunch of sugar because there's no protein source and a very little protein source. Right, right. And even things like bran. I have people tell me all the time, oh, I eat bran for breakfast. It's so healthy. And I'm just, ugh. It's just straight sugar, straight carbohydrates. And as Jake mentioned, carbohydrates are going to break down into sugar. And if our body is not metabolizing sugar efficiently, then we're going to store that sugar as fat and most commonly in the abdominal area. So, Going back to figuring out ahead of time, if we are headed in that direction, I mentioned the triglyceride level. So that oftentimes will go up before any of the other markers will go up. Even before we gain weight in the abdominal area, that number will start to creep up. The HDL, which is your good cholesterol. So another cholesterol value is oftentimes low uh, when it comes to insulin resistance or prediabetes. We know that the HDL, which is the good marker is related to cardiovascular exercise. So it's interesting because low cardiovascular exercise can actually also predispose us to that prediabetes or insulin resistance because we don't have the oxygen getting to the cells. The cells need oxygen to help with metabolizing food. So if we're not doing that cardiovascular exercise, the cells are not getting that right amount of oxygen, which is going to decrease the ability to break down carbohydrates and sugars, if not now, next year, then in 10 years from now. So that one was for you, <laughs> Mr. I don't need cardio. I never, ever, ever <laughs> said I don't need That's it. Right. I extremely dislike it. But you do it. I do it. Yes, I do it. I force myself to do it every single dang day, mm-hmm. seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't want to, mm-hmm. I'm doing something. Now, post Jenny. Yeah, pre-Jenny, hell no, I ain't doing that. No way. What do I need cardio for? I can't flex my cells. 
Well, yeah. So triglycerides, HDL. Another one is a serum insulin level. So the insulin is released from the pancreas to help with blood sugar stability. If we have an elevated insulin level, which P.S. This is a blood test that many, many, many doctors don't do because it may or may not be covered by insurance, or maybe they just don't know the importance. Regardless, it doesn't matter. A lot of people don't do it. A lot of physicians don't do it. But this insulin level can be a telltale sign if you're headed in that direction or if you already have insulin resistance or heading in that direction of prediabetes or diabetes. If the insulin level is elevated, that shows that the body is having to release more insulin to help with blood sugar stability. So that is another sign that we can, or another blood test that we can do early and figure out how your body is metabolizing and how it's responding. Other tests that a lot of doctors will do will be the blood sugar, obviously looking just at your fasting blood sugar, the hemoglobin A1C, which is a 90-day average of your blood sugar. A lot of times physicians won't check that one until you've already had an abnormal blood sugar, which by then you're pretty much already in that insulin resistance prediabetes category. So, you know, starting to look at those numbers earlier could be helpful as well. So those are the kind of blood tests to help us with identifying insulin resistance early. Shall we talk about risk factors for becoming insulin resistant? I think we should. Risk factors for insulin resistance. We already talked about uh, high sugar, high carbohydrate diet. Now, this doesn't have to be now. This can be in your teens and 20s and 30s. Are you talking to me now? Again, I've, I'm still talking to <laughs> you, you. I've never seen Jenny stare at me as hard as she's staring at me oh, this episode. <laughs> she's just grilling me this whole <laughs> podcast so far. So high sugar, high carbohydrate diets, not only in your 40s and 50s when you're actually showing the signs of insulin resistance on blood tests, but this goes back into your teens, 20s, and 30s. We are setting ourselves up in our and how our cells are going to respond that early on in life. So can you know, I interrupt you right there? Okay. Because when you said this to me, this was the first time that I really, really assessed what I was doing to myself because before you said those words to me as explicitly as you did it, I think it was a year, maybe two ago when you, when you said it like that, I thought that it doesn't matter right now. I can eat 15, 20 cookies at a time because my belly is not growing and my body is still badass enough to consume all this stuff. And my running joke was, if you eat enough at one time, they just cancel each other out and your body can't absorb it all at once. But you said those words to me. You said, what you're doing right now is damaging your cells for when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right now, you're setting yourself up. It's not later. Mm-hmm. It's right now. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to start making some changes. So then I, I did. I made some changes immediately. So instead of eating 15 to 20 cookies at once, now I do 5 to 10 at once. Which still is not recommended. But it's half. Well, you're in your mind, you're making progress. <laughs> and that's the most important part. So... Yes, you know, and you can't unfortunately undo what you did in your 20s and 30s, but we can reverse the 
ability of ourselves to be a little bit more efficient. The other thing you can control is hopefully instilling some better food, eating practices. Sure. Practices to better choices. Choices (laughs) to, you know, your children or to other people who you can influence. Just tell them what you're doing in your twenties really matters later on life. Even though at 20 they won't want to believe you. Anyway, other things besides dietary, the cardiovascular exercise we talked about is really important to get the oxygen to the cells. Sleep patterns can actually increase your risk of insulin resistance. So making sure you're on a quote unquote normal sleep pattern, which I won't go into that because that's a whole nother topic. Sleep apnea can increase the risk of insulin resistance, vitamin D deficiency. Don't just go take a bunch of vitamin D because we talked about a couple weeks ago that is a fat soluble vitamin and can get to a toxic level, but that is a very important level to have checked via blood. You know, just a couple of things that we can control to help with decreasing our risk of diabetes. Very good. So I just want to clarify something because you said it earlier that you can't undo the damage that you've done, but you can do other things that help compensate, I guess is a good word, or yeah, I guess just compensate for the three packs a day that you smoked in your teens and 20s, aka the 20, 30 cookies that I would eat at one time. It's almost synonymous in a sense, right? Right. So, and it's not necessarily compensating, but we can control how much insulin the pancreas is releasing. We can control our blood sugar through other practices. So, dietary changes, getting enough protein, watching your carbohydrates and sugar will help with that blood sugar stability, potentially things like berberine, which is a plant sterile that can actually help with glucose metabolism. So if our cells aren't able to fully metabolize on their own, we can use the berberine to help with stabilizing that. So there are certainly things you can do to reverse insulin resistance and prediabetes, but we're not going to fix our cellular damage 100%. I guess the biggest thing that people should take away from this is ignorance is not bliss, right? I like that. Yeah, ignorance is not bliss. Just because you can't see it in the mirror, you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not a very real significant thing because what we're talking about right now is one of the leading directly or indirectly causes a mortality, right? Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you want to live an extra five or 10 years? Why should you be taken out of the race by some silly thing just because of what you're putting in your mouth for your entire life? So just knowing, just do a simple test so you can see what your markers are. Once you see what your markers are, then you can say, oh yeah, I am doing great and I should keep eating 20 cookies. Probably not. (laughs) But you'll be able to see it. Once you see it on paper, it's like, okay, I'll make a little different decision when I'm deciding what to eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, those kind of things. How many glasses of wine that you might have a night? Maybe you do a little less. Right. It's just being cognizant of it is the biggest thing. Right. And to reverse the insulin resistance, prediabetes or diabetes into a more stable range doesn't mean you have to never eat a cookie again or never have your glass of wine again. It's all about balance and how we can balance our blood sugar with getting enough protein in our diet and really balancing the other carbohydrates and sugar through the diet as well. And that's what we help 
people with on a daily basis is figuring out a lifestyle to where you can add that extra year or five years to your life, but still be able to enjoy a lifestyle. Cool. Can we wrap things up? Yeah. So I want to leave people with this thing that's pretty explicit or vivid or however you want to say it. When somebody is drinking a glass of wine, can you give them a, an a synonymous thing? What is that equal to? One cookie, two cookies, 10 cookies, ballpark, ballpark. Three. But I mean, obviously it depends on what kind of cookie and how big the cookie is, but one glass of wine about equivalent to three cookies. Okay. So let that one sink in. Every glass of wine you consume is equivocal to three cookies as far as the way your body perceives the effects of it, mm-hmm. blood sugar-wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now if you have a glass of wine and some cookies. <laughs> right. Or whatever you pair your glass of wine with at dinner. Yeah. Bread. We could do a whole cheese, episode crackers. on that. We could come up with some generic meals and say this is equivalent to x amount of cookies once your body breaks it down and it hits your bloodstream we should do that one day we should that would be fun yeah that might help me out (laughs) all the cheese and crackers (laughs) all right cool so that was a lot i hope you guys listen to this one a glass of wine equals three cookies (laughs) sleep on that one (laughs) anything else that's it Cool. Thank you, everybody. And pay attention to next week. We're going to go over some more stuff. It's going to be fun. Okay. See ya. Bye. Thank you for subscribing on your social media and podcast platforms to The Berman Method. Dr. Jake Berman with Berman Physical Therapy and Jenny Berman, Physician Assistant with Berman Health and Wellness. You can find more information on our website, www.bermanpt.com for physical therapy, bermanpt.com forward slash wellness for the health and wellness. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and on your podcast platform. So be sure to follow us, like us, subscribe to us. And if you would like any further information, definitely visit our website and reach out to us. You may also find our free reports on the websites as well, where you can download this free information for yourself. Have a great day.